Our Heavenly Father, as we open your holy word, we pray that you would now enlighten our hearts and minds that we might understand the scriptures, apply it to our lives that we might respond with faith and obedience, and all this for your glory, for we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'll please open your Bibles now to our sermon text, we'll be looking especially this morning at Isaiah 714, the Emmanuel prophecy, but I'll be reading the fuller context, Isaiah 7 verses 1 through 17, page 572 in the Pew Bibles. So Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, And shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For behold, the boy knows, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come 
since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Emmanuel, God with us. Hopefully you are all familiar with this beautiful title of the Lord Jesus Christ as he fulfills this prophecy of Isaiah, which was written more than 700 years before the birth of our Lord. But how many of you know the full story, the full context behind this glorious prophecy? There is much more to this story than simply the one verse that is quoted in the Gospel of Matthew about a virgin giving birth and calling her son Emmanuel. At Christmas time, it's much more common to preach the birth of Christ from the Gospels rather than to wade into the deep waters of the Old Testament. But this year, I want to do something different, and I want to focus on the book of Isaiah, which is the source of the Emmanuel prophecy. The truth is, this is done less often because it is more challenging in some ways. And I'll be honest here at the outset, this text does present some theological complexities, some mysteries that I will do my best to explain to you succinctly this morning. But by studying these things, our understanding of God's word will be deepened. And most of our, most of all, our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. And as we see here, God with us will grow richer. And as Jesus prays to his Father in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. That's why we dig into the scriptures, to know the Lord and knowing him, to have life, rich, abundant, eternal life in and through Jesus Christ. And so that's why we study the scriptures. So this morning we'll work our way through Isaiah chapter 7, looking at first at the context of the Emmanuel prophecy, and then at the content and the fulfillment of this prophecy. So first, as we consider the context of Isaiah's prophecy of the virgin birth, this prophecy of Emmanuel, we must realize that it comes during a very dark time, during dark days in the history of God's people. It's in these dark days when there was a need for the Lord to provide hope, and he will do so through the prophet Isaiah. But you may also know this is right after Isaiah's commission in chapter 6. And he was a prophet who was commissioned to preach to a people who for the most part would not listen to him. And that's exactly what we see here. We get an introduction to some of the main power players of the day in verse 1. First there is Ahaz. He's the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He's the one that Isaiah is sent to speak to. And he is, without a doubt, one of the most wicked of all the kings of Judah. We're reminded several times in this passage that he is of the house of David, a direct descendant of David. David, that man after the Lord's own heart. Therefore, he is also in the direct line of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, he possesses none of the godly characteristics of either David or Jesus. Rather than worshiping the Lord, he worshiped the foreign gods of the surrounding nations, including sacrificing one of his sons, burning him as an offering 
to the god, the false god, Moloch. We'll see more of his character come out in this passage as Isaiah calls on him to trust the Lord, and yet he refuses to do so. Now, waging war against Judah and King Ahaz is first the northern kingdom of Israel led by King Pekah, son of Ramalia. And you'll see often the Lord, the Lord uh, refuses to even recognize him, him, just calling him the son of Ramalia. Pekah had murdered the former king. He had seized the throne of Israel for himself. And like all the other kings of Israel, he did not serve the Lord. He did not worship him. So it's no surprise to him that he is waging war against his brothers to the south, even allying himself with foreign kings to do so. So he's allied himself with the second, uh, the next king here, King Rezin of Syria, with his capital city of Damascus. We're told in verse 6 that the plan of this northern alliance is to conquer Judah, to dethrone Ahaz, and to set up on the throne a man named uh, the son of a man named Tabeel, which would mean the end of the line and the throne of David. They have not been able yet to mount an attack, but they're right outside Jerusalem. We're told in verse 2, the heart of Ahaz, the heart of his people are shaking as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Shaking, trembling with fear. So you can see these are dark days for God's people as north and south wage war against one another. Because of the serious nature of this threat, the Lord tells Isaiah to go to meet King Ahaz as he is inspecting the upper conduit, the conduit of the upper pool. In other words, Ahaz is securing Jerusalem's water supply, preparing the city in case it comes under siege. And in response to these serious threats, Isaiah prophesies to Ahaz. Verse 4, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. While Ahaz is trembling with fear, the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, counsels him, fear not, strengthen your heart, trust the Lord. He has the situation well in hand. The two forces coming against him, they may look mighty, The Lord calls them smoldering stumps of firebrands. They are almost burnt out. Their strength is almost used up. All Ahaz has to do is trust the Lord and wait, and he will be delivered. Concerning their plan to dethrone Ahaz, Isaiah says in verse 7, Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Their plan will come to nothing. Ahaz has nothing to fear. In verse 8, Isaiah prophesies that within 65 years, Ephraim, this northern kingdom of Israel, they will be shattered from being a people. They will come to nothing. In fact, they would be taken into exile in Assyria in far fewer years than that. Isaiah's final charge to Ahaz in this section comes at the end of verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This is a final call to trust in the Lord. The Lord was the one who would rescue Ahaz from all these threats. All he had to do was put his faith in the Lord, wait upon the Lord. 
Sadly, however, Ahaz was not a man of faith. He did not trust the Lord. There's no record of his response to these words here. But it all becomes clearer as the Lord addresses him a second time, beginning in verse 10. So the Lord speaks to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah, verse 11. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. So the Lord here is offering a sign. He offers a grand one by saying it can be as deep as Sheol, as deep as the grave, as high as heaven. He's basically saying it can be whatever your heart desires. And the point of this sign is that it will confirm to Ahaz what the Lord has already promised. That Ahaz has nothing to fear from these two kings who are threatening him. When you think of signs in scripture, you may perhaps think of the signs and wonders which the Lord did in Egypt. The ten plagues. Mighty signs and wonders. Now sometimes signs are miraculous like these. Other times they are simple providences. Simple providences that the Lord does in history to confirm his word. Like when the Lord told Moses that the sign that the Lord's presence would go with Moses would be that he would bring Moses back to worship the Lord on the same mountain where he met with him in the burning bush. This was a simple providence that confirmed the Lord's word. Then verse 12, they has said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. This may sound pious at first. Perhaps he's referring to Deuteronomy 6.16, which says you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. But of course, that does not apply here. Ahaz would not be testing the Lord when the Lord wants him to ask for a sign. So really, this refusal is a cover-up for Ahaz's unbelief, his refusal to trust the Lord. He doesn't want to see a sign because he doesn't want any evidence that would encourage him to believe anything that the Lord has to say to him one way or the other. In fact, we know from 2 Kings 16 that Ahaz has made his own plans for how he will survive the attacks of this alliance. He will take the gold and silver from the temple of the Lord, robbing the Lord's temple. He will send it to the king of Assyria. Not the Syrians who are attacking him, but the Assyrian empire further to the north, asking them to attack Israel and Syria from behind. And we don't know the exact timing, whether he has already done this or he will do it. But the point is that Ahaz is not trusting in the Lord and his word, but rather he is trusting in foreign armies to deliver him. And he and all his people will pay dearly for this grave error. He refuses the sign. The Lord's word to him does not change. And the Lord goes on to give him a sign anyway. This brings us to part two this morning, the prophecy, and especially its fulfillment. Continuing in verse 13, And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, often we stop right there, 
But you see, the sign in the prophecy does not end at verse 14. It continues through verse 17. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Let's consider this sign and how it will be fulfilled. The Lord gives this sign to Ahaz and to the house of David, even though he did not want it. The rebuke in verse 13 sets us up for the fact that this prophecy is not going to be universally positive. The sign is found most of all in the child that is born, and this name that is given to him, Emmanuel, which, as you know, in Hebrew means God with us. Its name, it's a name of hope given in the midst of these dark times, reminding God's people that their God is with them to protect them and to uphold all his promises to them. And like all biblical signs, this child, this name, it points to the fact that it will confirm God's word to them. And the specific events that God promises will take place, we see here in verses 15 through 17, and then even on through the rest of the chapter. So let's see what we see here. When the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, we see he will have a specific diet of curds and honey. Now this may seem positive at first, a rich diet as a result of living in the land flowing with milk and honey. You often know those things of the land, the promised land. But actually, if you look down to verses 21 and 22, you see this diet is actually the result of a depopulation and a desertion of the land. And with so few people left, there is plenty of milk and honey left for the few that remain. Then in verse 16, you see when this depopulation will take place. It is before he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. The land these two kings are attack the land of these two kings attacking Ahaz will be deserted and that will give room for the people to spread out. So this here is the good news of deliverance that the two kings attacking Ahaz will be destroyed. Their lands will be deserted. But then we have a note of discord in verse 17. Days are coming like when Ephraim deserted Judah. That's when the kingdom was split in two, back in the days of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And who is coming? The king of Assyria. Then if we go forward into verses 18 through 25, there are prophecies of judgment. The whole land will be shaved with a razor. Vines will become briars and thorns. All this coming at the hands of the king of Assyria, the one that Ahaz was trying to make into his ally. In other words, the king of Assyria, he first takes care of the problems of king, kings Rezin and Pekah, but then he sweeps onward and he starts ravaging Judah as well. Instead of trusting the Lord to be his deliverer, Ahaz trusted the king of Assyria. And this will lead to his destruction. 
Now we saw, we see that all this is tied to this child to be born. All this will take place before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. And so when you read this whole prophecy in context, it's actually much darker than perhaps you ever knew. The child to be born, who will be called Emmanuel, God with us, he confirms God's original promises to Ahaz that God will deliver Ahaz and Judah from the two kings who are presently attacking him. That's the hope. But since Ahaz has refused the sign because he has refused to trust in the Lord, they will then suffer far more at the hands of the king of Assyria. And now we must ask the question, exactly how will Isaiah 7.14, this great prophecy of Emmanuel, be fulfilled? Now you know and I know it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in his virgin birth. And this is explicitly stated in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. But a plain reading of Isaiah 7 also indicates that this is given for Ahaz and for a child to be born in his days. The solution then is that this is a prophecy with a double fulfillment. And it's not the only prophecy in the Bible with a double fulfillment. There are other examples of double fulfillment in the Old Testament. For example, prophecies of the day of the Lord. They are fulfilled in judgments that came in those days, but they also point forward to the final day of the Lord to come when Jesus Christ returns. So there is a first fulfillment in the days of Isaiah and King Ahaz. But there is some mystery concerning this because the prophecy is given, but the fulfillment of it is not explicitly recorded. There are at least two options. Perhaps there is an unnamed and unknown mother who gave birth to a child and named her son Emmanuel. The only important thing is that she was known to King Ahaz and others at the time, and so the sign was received. The other strong possibility, this is held by many scholars, and this is perhaps where I lean and think is most likely, is that the birth of this child is recorded just afterwards in Isaiah chapter 8. So if you'll look forward one chapter in your Bibles, let me read verses 3 and 4. This is Isaiah speaking. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maharshalal Hashbas, for before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Here we see that Isaiah has a son with the prophetess, who's presumably so-called because she is the wife of the prophet. And the Lord instructs Isaiah to give the child the name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means speeding to the plunder, hastening to the spoil. And as you see in verse 4, he is the sign of the very same thing or a very similar thing as Emmanuel. That at a young age, before he cries, my mother or my father, The wealth of Damascus, the capital of Syria, the spoil of Samaria, the capital of Israel, will be carried away to the king of Assyria. This is very similar to the same to what Emmanuel was to signify. 
that the two kings, their lands would be deserted. And so this is why it seems quite likely he is also a fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy. So while he's given one name by his father, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, it's quite possible that he is given another name by his mother, Emmanuel, according to Isaiah 7.14. Now there is an obvious difficulty with this interpretation. And it's that while verse 3 uses a euphemism, it does say very clearly that Isaiah went to his wife before she conceived. Could this still fulfill the prophecy of a virgin conceiving and giving birth? Now, of course, if we're looking at the prophecy through the lens of the way it is fulfilled by Christ, we might say nothing less could do. But I don't know, I don't think that's necessarily how it would have been understood by the original hearers. The Hebrew word used in Isaiah 7.14 is Alma, which means a young maiden of marriageable age, chaste, and therefore a virgin. Clearly, the young maiden begins as a virgin and is so when the prophecy is given. But it's not clear that in the first fulfillment, it was a supernatural conception and that she remains a virgin. The point of the sign is not the miracle of a virgin conception, but rather the sign was in the naming of the child, Emmanuel, and then in the fulfillment of all the Lord's promises that the sign pointed to. And so I do think it's possible that in the lesser, the first fulfillment, it was an ordinary conception and birth. But this only makes more spectacular and utterly unique the second and greater fulfillment in Christ. So that brings us then to the second fulfillment. And there's one more piece of evidence that shows we are dealing with a double fulfillment. And that is in the way that the gospel writer Matthew uses the term fulfill in the first two chapters of his gospel. So if we're looking now in Matthew chapter 2, when Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt during Jesus' childhood, he writes in 2.15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And here Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1, 1, which is not a predictive prophecy, but rather it looks back on the historical narrative of the Lord rescuing Israel out of Egypt. And he points out that Jesus is fulfilling this scripture by following the same pattern, coming out of Egypt just like Israel. Theologians call this a typological fulfillment. We see this again two verses later. When King Herod slaughters the male infants in Bethlehem, he's trying to kill Jesus, but of course the Lord rescues him. Matthew says this is a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31.15, Rachel weeping for her children. Again, this is not a fulfillment of predictive prophecy, but rather a repeating of a typological pattern. And so, when we look at Matthew 1, 18 through 25, the story of Jesus' virgin birth, which we read earlier, I believe we see here the same thing, a typological fulfillment. Jesus is repeating the pattern. This is the second time that a child will be born and called Emmanuel. But this second fulfillment is far greater than the first. 
This time, the maiden will remain a virgin throughout conceiving and giving birth. This time, Mary is with child from the Holy Spirit, so that the son to be born to her is both truly man and truly God. So this title, Emmanuel, is not just a sign of hope that God will rescue his people from invading kings. This time, it is a literal reality. This time, Emmanuel means that God himself, the second person of the Trinity, has taken on flesh to be born a man and ultimately to achieve his mission to go and die on the cross. And that brings us to the second name he has given here in Matthew 1.21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ is truly Emmanuel, God with us. For only God with us could save us from our sins. For if he were not a man, he would not be able to live a life just like us. He would not be able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He would not be able to face every temptation and overcome them all. And ultimately, to die in our place as our sinless substitute. For God cannot die. Only a man can die as a substitute for man. Only a man could be the second and last Adam to succeed where the first Adam had failed. But on the other side of the coin, if he were not true God, he also could not be our Savior. He had to be God to remain perfectly righteous and holy in the sinful and fallen world, living a perfect, sinless life. And he had to be God to die for the sins of not just one other man, but for his death to be of such infinite value that he bore the sins of all who trust in him. As Francis Turretin writes, Our mediator had to be God-man to accomplish these things. Man to suffer, God to overcome. Man to receive the punishment we deserved, God to endure and drink it to the dregs. Man to acquire salvation for us by dying, God to apply it to us by overcoming. Man to become ours by the assumption of flesh, God to make us like himself by the bestowal of the Spirit. This neither a mere man nor God alone could do, for neither could God alone be subject to death nor could man alone conquer it. Man alone could die for man. God alone could vanquish death. Praise be to God. Now this is the first part of the significance of Emmanuel. Only the God man, only God with us could save us from our sins. But second, if we consider the Emmanuel prophecy in its first fulfillment... Remember that it was two-sided. It was initially a prophecy of hope, deliverance from the two kings who were presently waging war on Judah. But since Ahaz refused the sign and refused to trust the Lord, there was also judgment coming at the hands of the king of Assyria. And this is the danger of God with us. For God is a holy God. And it is dangerous for sinners to come into the presence of a holy God unless God deals with our sin. Even in the gospel, the good news of salvation is only comprehensible if you first understand 
the bad news that you stand under the threat of eternal judgment because of your sins. Only once you know the bad news can you understand the good news. And even in this, we see that the threat is from God himself. Salvation is both offered by God, but it is, in fact, a salvation from God, saving you from his wrath and his judgment. All this is to say that with the coming of Emmanuel, he has come as a savior. But only if you receive him, only if you put your trust in him. For Jesus Christ, he came that first time in humility, with a mission to save his people from their sins by laying down his life for us. And if you turn from your sin, if you put your trust in him, there is hope and peace. There is mercy and grace. There is forgiveness and eternal life. But you must know that there is the other side. That Christ now reigns and he will come a second time to usher in the final judgment. And if you are not repentant, if you are not trusting in him, then there will be no comfort in Emmanuel, God with us. For you will face God's wrath upon you for your sins. So do not put your trust in any other. Do not put your trust like Ahaz in any earthly deliverer, for they cannot deliver you. Trust in Jesus Christ, in him alone. He is Emmanuel. He is Jesus, the Messiah. And he has come to save his people from their sins. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus Christ, the Savior, has come. And we praise you that he is Emmanuel, fulfilling the prophecy given more than 700 years before his birth and doing so in a fuller and greater way than ever before. And because he is both God and man, he is our perfect and only Savior. And our faith is in him and him alone. Because Christ has come and has poured out his spirit upon us, we know that you are always with us. You never leave us and you never forsake us. And so we take comfort and strength from your presence. We rest in your promises. And would you assure us even more so now as we come to the table. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.